Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep The Voices by Edward Wellen, a short story from the March 1954 issue of Universe Science Fiction. And um, I've read uh, a bit of Wellen, Edward Wellen, before, and I told Eric about it. <laughs> yep. And uh, you liked this story quite a bit, I think. I did. It's very short, but very good, I think. It's too bad this this fellow, as far as I can tell, wrote just a, a small handful of, of short pieces, one not all that distinguished novel, and, and, and disappeared from the world of literature. Mm-hmm. He was a steady... Um a steady writer uh, starting in the 50s. This is one of his earliest stories. Um, and he continued up into the 80s, maybe in the 90s even. Uh, he he uh, lived a long time, but he, he started late, but he continued uh, writing short stories. I have read maybe a dozen of his stories, and I consistently appreciated what he, he's doing. He's doing something different than a lot of other writers, but he has some echoes of... Uh, people like Frederick Brown, I would say, a um, little bit Philip K. Dick in certain ways. His writing's not the most polished. Um, it's not like Ray Bradbury poetic, but um, his ideas are always fun, and he's got a sense of humor. Judging from the story you recommended to me, Jesse, The Voices, uh, I would m- agree with most of that, although... I think maybe one of the reasons you picked the voices is that the writing is is pretty darn good. Yep. Uh, why don't we read through it? And uh, it's only two pages long. And then um, see see what we can make of it. Be my pleasure. When he was 15, he sat one evening over his homework, studiously ignoring it for the moment. With his pencil, he drummed a hollow-sounding, descending and ascending scale on his cheek by opening and closing his mouth. His elbow, which was resting on the table, suddenly slid. The point of the pencil drove into the center of his left palm and broke off. He pressed a finger on the gash to stem the flow of blood and ran to the bathroom to mercurochrome and bandage the wound. He didn't think to pry out the point and the flesh healed over it. When the scab fell away, there was a faint grayish speck visible under the small white scar. Through the years, the currents of his body washed the speck along at the rate of one billionth of an inch per second. When he was 18, he lost an incisor on the football field by tripping and landing on his water bucket. His dentist screwed a tooth of chromium cobalt alloy into his jaw as time went by Further visits to the dentist weighed him down with 23 fillings. When he was 21 and working for his Ph.D., plowing through acres of small print blurred his vision. His optometrist fitted him with a pair of of steel-rimmed glasses. When he was 24, he held a good job as a chemical engineer. He loved his work and grudged the time he spent away from it, and so he got into the habit of nibbling a salt-sprinkled tomato for lunch every day. This caused an acid imbalance in his body. It showed in the black greening of the steel rims of his glasses and of his face where they touched. When he was 26, his glasses fogged and he misread a dial. The explosion that followed ruined his hearing. 
he began wearing a hearing aid. When he was 27, he married. It was a double ring ceremony and the bride, the bride firmly slipped a gold band over the trembling third finger of his left hand. He had a habit of tapping the ring against his teeth whenever he became lost in thought. It seemed to help him find his way. But his wife said time after time, must you do that? It wore on her nerves like so many other habits of his. Are you doing it only to drive me mad? And she would angrily step up the tempo of her gum chewing. When he was 30, it was 10 a.m. Nicholas Kane, Ph.D., sat at his desk. A problem was facing him, and he absently clicked his wedding band against his teeth. In that second, the bit of graphite, which in 15 years had marched a half inch along his palm toward his fingers, was moving one billionth of an inch. Dr. Kane froze. He was beginning to hear voices in his head. The first was a woman's voice, and even through the metallic distortion, Dr. Kane sensed a suggestive sleepiness furring her speech. Bill? A pause. Then the woman spoke again. She sounded wide awake now. There was anger in her voice, a trace of scorn. Put the clock down, you fool. Her anger suddenly gave way to fear. No, please, please, dear. I promise I'll never see him again. An unpleasant sound of metal striking bone, a long bubbling sigh, silence. And then a man saying sickly, God, what have I done? And that was all. During the drama Dr. Kane had overheard, the bit of graphite had moved nine one billionths of a second, excuse me, of an inch. He was no longer, it was no longer operative. Dr. Nicholas Kane looked around to see if any of his fellow workers were eyeing him strangely. They were all busy at their own tasks. Relieved, he hid behind a worksheet and frowned in puzzlement. Curious, he thought, this business of hearing voices. Am I going psycho or were those voices real? Maybe I acted as a radio receiver, picked up a broadcast. It's happened to a knife sharpener when crystals of carborundum from his grindstone deposited on the metal fillings in his teeth and acted like the Galena crystals used in the old crystal radio sets, but I haven't sharpened any knives lately, not even metaphorically. He gave it up for the time being, turning back to his work, but the experience had unnerved him too much. He put his papers aside and, pleading a headache, left for home. The morning sun and the autumn air proved so buoyant that he was almost in a holiday mood by the time he reached his house. His wife would be surprised. Why not really surprise her by suggesting that they spend the rest of this glorious day picnicking? It was a long time since they'd been on an outing. He really should make up to her for neglecting her so much of the time. He let himself in with his key. The house was quiet. Then he smiled as he heard the dainty snoring of his beloved. He tiptoed into the bedroom she lay on her back, one hand flung out near her pair of horn-rimmed glasses on the phone table, the other seeming to point at the clock on the dresser. Slowly, his presence penetrated her sleep. Without opening her eyes, she murmured, Bill? <laughs> um, I, I want to point out that uh, maybe not people not reading it on the page may not notice that Bill is not the name of our main character. Oh, he's Nicholas Kane. That's right. Uh, Bill comes up twice in the story, but it's not her husband, and it's not our main character. 
um, which is very important. Uh, these these sorts of very short stories, like you know the two page story, the one page Frederick Brown story, often rely on a little ending like this, where it's just you have to do a little work thinking what's going on. It doesn't tell you what's going to happen next or earlier. <laughs> you like the story, obviously. I do. I think it's a uh, that's a fun little joke, and it has a lot of nice touches um, in it. And uh, made me do a lot of research about that phenomena that I all, I'd always heard about that is sort of talked about in this story, the, the setup, right? He's a cyborg, essentially. He's got all <laughs> the metal uh, implants in him, all sorts of um, crystals growing, you know, sort of uh, chemical reactions happening. And he's turning himself into a radio, some accidentally. Oh. Or is it a radio? <laughs> so yeah, the, when I was a kid, I heard about these uh, this phenomena where uh, you can pick up radio signals on your teeth. I'm sure I heard it from you know some movie or TV show where or from your teeth. I I've never had that happen to me, but um, in in researching it, um, it seems to be a real thing, but very rare and hard to replicate. What have you heard about it? Indeed, it is. That's exactly what my understanding is. And uh, since I'm older than you are, um, I lived through a period when it was reported more frequently. The reason I say <laughs> it's a period when it was reported more frequently is that it was a period when many, many more Americans got fillings. And mm -hmm. I remember once uh, uh, a thoughtless dentist installed a filling in my mouth which opposed another filling that had a different dielectric constant. And, oh, no. Oh, yes, indeedy. And he had to get that one right back out again because he got the amalgam wrong. And, yeah. uh, and so there, you really do set up electrical currents. Um, I, I have seen documentation that people sometimes pick up radio signals. When I was a boy, I did, in fact, build one of those crystal radio sets. Me too. And... Uh, and I attached a wire from it to the screen on my bedroom window so that it would act as a wide antenna and with nothing other than the signal that came through space. No battery, no nothing. That was enough for me to be able to hear the radio. So okay. I have full faith that although the documentation may be to more cases than really happened, I believe it happened. Yeah, the most famous uh, person to have this reportedly happened to them was uh, Lucille Ball. Um, but it's unconfirmed whether the, this is a, a, a real phenomenon. However, it's real enough in the human consciousness that I think most of the people who would read this story in, you know, the spring of 1954 would recognize it for a, a quasi-real phenomenon. Indeed. One of the, the things that I like so much about this uh, story is that it's told with a, a marvelous combination of the human and the scientific. Mm -hmm. um, lots of hard SF, that is the kind of science fiction where you can sit down and do the calculations. Um, lots of hard SF is rightly criticized for having no sense of characterization. And nothing is really going on but working out the implications of the hard SF. Um, for example, a very famous story is Larry Niven's Neutron Star. Mm. She talks about uh, coming uh, a spaceship being caught in a uh, 
the gravitational field of a neutron star. It is so dense that the gravity is so strong that there's a gravitational gradient from Mm -hmm. one end to the other of the ship and things twist around because of that gravitational gradient. You know, you don't really find out much about (laughs) the the pilot and there aren't any other humans involved. It's a really neat story if you like hard SF. But this, (laughs) this has hard SF uh, and it also has things that are very human. Um, so from the very beginning, um, you know, that, that first paragraph, when he was 15, he sat um, with his homework, studiously ignoring it for the moment. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's such a lovely touch about the kind of fellow he was at that age. Then he's drumming his, uh, his pencil and he's going, you know, and we, you know, we, we know how to do that, you know. Yep. Then he stabs it into his hand. Um, and then we're told at the end of that paragraph, through the years, the currents of his body, which is already to treat him as a as a as a mechanical object, mm-hmm. which we all are, right? We are made of stuff. Washed the speck along at the rate of one billionth of an inch per second. Now that's when he's fifteen. Then it says when he was thirty, and there's a pause. And mm-hmm. we find out that, in fact, in that second, the bit of graphite, which in 15 years had marched a half inch along his palm toward his fingers, was moving one billionth of an inch. So the kid in me, you know, who used to read stories like this in the 50s and 60s when I was a youngster, whipped out my calculator, you know, and I said, oh, really? Uh, hard SF. So mm-hmm. 60 minutes in an hour times 60, I mean, seconds in a minute times 60 minutes in an hour times 24 hours in a day times 365 and a quarter days in a year times 15 years equals, turns out, 473,364,000 or close enough to 500 million. That is to say, half a billion, which would mean. Half an inch, just mm-hmm. what the story told us. The hard science fiction is right. So that's terrific. And we who love hard SF can say, well, we love this. And it's mixed in with the human part of it. What I find so amazing is at the end, we all know where this is going, right? We know mm-hmm. what he's going to hear on the radio. We know when it says, he hasn't paid enough attention to his wife. He really should go out on a picnic with her. He's going to find out that she's the one who said Bill, right? And therefore, we expect, since we have all this set up for the radio, just as you said, Jesse, people would have recognized this phenomenon when the book, when the story was written. We expect him to go home and find that she's been murdered. She's been clocked, as it were, hit over mm-hmm. the head with the clock, right? Because time has passed, in fact, 15 years. But in fact, she looks over without opening her eyes and murmurs, Bill? Mm -mm. So if this is a radio, this is not hard SF. Suddenly, this is a radio that's hearing the future. And whammo, all of the, the nicely constructed 
expectations we have about the the demise of the relationship because she didn't like him. She chews her her gum more aggressively because she doesn't like the fact that he's too thoughtful. The mismatch between this guy who started out not really being studious, but became more and more interested, worked his way up to a PhD, engineer, he cares about problems more than he cares about people, perhaps. And she wants she wants something more sensuous, right? You can tell from that gum chewing. She wants something sensuous. You can see the whole development of the character, the dissolution of their marriage, and at the same time, hard SF. Mm -hmm. But it's not hard SF at the end. It turns out we're seeing where this will go hereafter. And the residual question is, and this is why, to me, it's much more than a joke. The residual question is, okay, Nicholas Kane, now what the hell are you going to do? Right? Because you never heard the voices before, and the story told us at the beginning, you will never hear them again. <laughs> right? So the only, the only confirmation you have of the, the truth of this in your world is that your wife said one syllable. Bill? Mm-hmm. I, 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 in rereading, I can see, and you, it does actually make you turn, not back the page, because it's only two pages long, but turn to earlier on the page and reread the exact conversation that is about to happen, right? The last line is, without opening her eyes, she murmured, Bill. And then we rewind on the page, and the, fir the first was a woman's voice, and even through the metallic distortion, Dr. Kane sensed a suggestive sleep sleepiness furring her speech bill <laughs> so that that's a re repeated line a pause is it a pause because he's recognizing that voice from earlier or is it because there's something else happening in the room then the woman spoke again she sounded wide awake now there was this anger in her voice a trace of scorn put the clock down you fool well we got the clock just a minute ago didn't we <laughs> right he's picking it up <laughs> To do what with it? He, her anger suddenly gave way to fear. No, please, please, dear. I promise I'll never see him again. Smash. An unpleasant sound striking bone. A long, bubbling sigh, silence. And then a man saying, he doesn't recognize his own voice. A man saying, God, what have I done? Well, you and know, Jesse, um, speaking from the experience of people who have told me about having affairs, um, you have, you have moved to one interpretation of that conversation, but there are two, mm -hmm. right? I mean, think of all of the, the mistresses who have said, when are you going to leave him? Right. And they've been strung along. It could be when she says, Please, please, dear, I promise I'll never see him again. It could well be that she's speaking to Nicholas and saying, meaning I will never talk to, to Bill. But it could also be that she's talking to Bill and meaning she'll never again see Nicholas. Ah. Interesting. And, and we, we just don't know. We just don't know. I think yours is the more, the quicker interpretation at first. But as you say, he doesn't recognize the voice. 
there's a, a number of patterns that uh, develop uh, as you reread as well. Um, and it, it is, I think people, I don't remember reading somebody say this, but they used to say it about Frederick Brown, and I, I do classify them sort of together. Um, they're, bo- they're both no- best known, I guess, as their sh- short fiction writers, although Brown has wrote longer pieces and is probably better known because of it. But um, it's a very careful attention to the writing of every sentence. And one of the things that happens in each paragraph, in the setup anyways, and then I think in, in the reflection later on, is uh, the pattern of, of sound and movement. So uh, it's, it goes like this. I just noted a whole bunch of them on the page as, I, as you were reading it. Drummed, blurred, tapping nerves... Tempo clicked, trembling, uh, furring, grinding sound. <laughs> right? Those are all descriptions of him doing something, either with his fingers, which often come up, uh, or his hand, or his vision. And at the beginning of the story, he's sitting, studiously ignoring. <laughs> and then the wife is, um, uh, how is she? She's, um, daintily snoring <laughs> right and and then uh when she's smashed over the head there's a long bubbling sigh right i assume she smashed over the head um that pattern of of um him sort of being nervously inattentive is r- repeated throughout his sort of growing up he's a studious guy he's always you know uh, getting himself well-educated, but he just doesn't pay attention. He falls over his own wa- water bucket at the foot on the football field. He's knocked down by someone else, right? He stabs himself in the hand with a pencil. Um, his wife has to hold his hand um, as she firmly slips the gold band over his trembling finger, right? And when his glasses fog up, he misreads a dial and an explosion ruins his hearing. He causes all of the problems that lead him to have these numerous uh, metal implants or, uh, I don't know if graphite's, no, that's carbon, so that's not metal, but various implants into his body that cause the, uh, the ultimate effect, right? His, his, his preference for having a, a habit of nibbling salt-sprinkled tomatoes, right? You, you can see that's like there's a battery or something, right? right. It's, it's all galvanizing together into this ultimate final uh, act that he seemed accidentally to do. And that's just really good writing that I think makes the story, you know, really, um, I, don't, I don't know, gel or, you know, some sort of metaphor having to do with electricity. It just really works. I think I, I agree with you thoroughly. The, the level of detail here that is, that is simultaneously uh, human and, and hard SF, um, they, they are simultaneous. I mean, it's clean writing. It's accomplishing that characterization of the kind of fellow you just described at the same time that it's advancing the story. I think it's also thematically significant that most of the things that you pointed to, Jesse, as being vivid, most of them, not all of them, but most of them are sounds. Mm-hmm. They're not sights, they're sounds. And so the last thing before he's set up to get this transmission, this information, is 
is the, the impairment of his hearing. I think thematically, what we're getting in this story is a question. Uh, if you thought you could know something, if you had a revelation, if you thought that it were true, would you act on it? Is, is knowledge that is uncertain something that you can use to, to develop your life, to make your life? And, and I think that's a significant thematic question. It's a significant thematic question in all of Western culture's history. It's a, a question that Oedipus has to face. You know, what, how do you make of the, the oracle? You think you understand it, but you may not. I, I would point out that this man is named Nicholas Cain. Uh, old Nick is the devil. <laughs> Cain is the fellow who commits the first murder. And he does it because his brother Abel has found greater respect in the eyes of God. It's jealousy of someone else, right? So his wife, Nicholas Cain's wife, perhaps prefers Bill, and therefore he commits the murder as Nicholas Cain did. But the thing about Nicholas Cain, the thing about Cain is Cain's murder is part of what brings us forward uh, to the point at which we need to if we're Christians, embrace faith, embrace voices that we can't exactly see and modify our world. Now, if this story is meant to ask us what we should do on the basis of faith, I would point out that in addition to getting the exact travel distance of that speck of graphite, that is the remains of the pencil point, Right. The moving finger writes and having writ moves on. In addition to getting the remains of that that pencil point moving a, a quarter, a half an inch. The stabbing happens at the age of 15 and the story of Nicholas Kane as either the murderer or we don't know what when he goes in to see his wife, if in fact. You know, he, and whatever, if it's from the fantasy uh, future, um, is at the age of 30. And traditionally, of course, Jesus, who was to redeem us for sins like Cain's, begins his ministry at the age of 30 and is crucified at the age of 33. <laughs> so astonishingly, although there are explicit things here that would ask any you know, teenage or young male reader of universe in spring of 1954 to pay attention to the hard SF underlying it. The whole thing resonates with the story of Jesus. <laughs> uh, really? What do we do about the voices we hear? Do we hear them because our hearing is impaired? Do we hear them because the universe has just lined things up to make our poor mechanical bodies subject to thinking we have this information? Or is there real truth out there that sometimes by accident we have access to? And I think the story offers no answer. But if you read this as a man confronting adultery and perhaps even being driven to murder on the basis of deciding that he knows the answer— Wow, that's 
pretty darn powerful. And this story, I think, leaves us with a lot to mull. It's it's a joke, but it plays with a genre. It plays with expectations and it plays with the myths in Western culture. I think it's a marvelous little gem. I agree. Um, this is one of the things I really like about Wellen is he he sort of thinks about everyday objects in ways that are just way out there, not the way other writers do. And in you know in seeing those parallel blurred tapping tempo, right? I also saw a, a pattern of sort of seeing the world like a not just like a cyborg, but like a robot does, or like a spaceship would. Um, one of the things that happens is at the very beginning, he's working on his homework distractedly. Later on, he's uh, he gets glasses, <laughs> so he's seeing the world through them. Then he's looking at a dial, right? Then there's the clock, right? Every uh, There's a hearing aid for modulating his, his understanding of the world. There's always a medium between him and reality. He doesn't know his wife is cheating on him <laughs> until he gets a message, a voice speaking to him. This is a uh, – we talked about Wellen when I was telling you about him – how you noticed that a lot of his story titles have voices or speaking in them, right? Yeah. Or at least in the plots. And there is this idea that we have voices in our head. Um, does he know before he walks into the room that his wife has been cheating on him? And in a sense, he does, right? <laughs> Something's told him. But I, I also want to note that his glasses are steel-rimmed. Hers are horn-rimmed, right? She's the the fully biological. He is the mechanical, right? And when when Doctor Kane, who I we never find out anything about his friends if he has any, um, all his interactions with other people seem to be embarrassing. <laughs> um, one of the things that happens when he hears these voices, he looks around to see whether any of his fellow workers, not his his colleagues, right, were eyeing him strangely. They were all busy at their own tasks, relieved he hid behind a worksheet, right? Mm -hmm. That sense of being cut off from everyone else and seeing the world through voices in your head, um, uh, hearing voices, being controlled by... Uh, I mean, I, I don't know Edward Wellen's mental health history, <laughs> I know that in all of his stories that I've I've really really enjoyed, he is dealing in a in the same way that Philip K. Dick does, with sort of an alternate um, way of interacting with the world that other people just don't seem to tune into. Tune in, huh? <laughs> yeah. Using that metaphor, it, it's there's something to this. So the the last question or a a further question that the story asks us after we're done reading it is not the one in the uh, the last paragraph, but the one you pointed us to when we replay that dialogue that that Nicholas Kane thinks he hears. And if indeed we want to read that as a dialogue that he will have with his wife, the last line is God. What have I done? Which, of course, is what Cain has to ask, too. What 
do we do with knowledge? But there's always more to say. <laughs>